Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome to a special edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Today, I am uh, doing a special edition because we have a very special guest, Mike Pillsbury, the chief advisor to President Trump on all things China, a a longtime expert on U.S.-China relations and the author of an incredible book called The Hundred Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower, is joining us. Mike, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Uh, it's wonderful to have you here. And I, um, we have so much going on in U.S.-China relationships right now. I wonder if you could talk at the beginning uh, how w- uh, what we discovered during coronavirus, specifically our codependency on China's supply chain, uh, has put us in a bad position in the beginning of this pandemic. Well, the discoveries are continuing with each passing day. I wouldn't say the whole situation is well understood yet. A number of specific things are hard facts. One is that uh, first China and then the WHO on January 14th said that this was not transferring from human to human. And that had an impact all over the world of a kind of complacency and um, lack of a desire to see the matter urgently. So that was the first big uh, striking thing that happened. Later on, it was corrected one to two weeks later. Uh, But then something worse happened. The head of the World Health Organization flew to Beijing and praised in very lavish, uh, sort of gushy terms, China's response. And that too seems to have been a mistake um, by him personally. And then there's been a series of uh, investigatory journalistic profiles now on who is this Dr. Tedros? How did he come to be the head of the World Health Organization? Uh, And that in turn has led to other findings that somehow over the past 10 or 20 years, our dependency on Chinese products, uh, whether it's pharmaceuticals or defense items, uh, sort of a wide swath of uh, production, uh, we've outsourced so much to China that some of the percentages are up in the 90% or higher. So there's a number of discoveries being made about China um, that has led to several congressional chairmen saying they're going to do an investigation um, about what this is. I feel somewhat vindicated, John, because my book uh, alleged all this, but I was I was heavily attacked when it came out five years ago uh, as an alarmist. You were. Yes. And, and now a lot of the things you, you, know, you make a very important point in your book that 
the mistake that America has made uh, in or five, there's really five assumptions or, or six assumptions that we made wrong about China. And um, if you could talk a little bit about those assumptions, the, the, uh, my favorite one was that one, they're on the road to democracy. And two, that uh, they're really uh, the more we engage them, the more friendly they're going to be to our interest. Neither of those have turned out to be true, particularly in this pandemic. Yes, I would call it wasteful thinking, even delusional in some areas. Some of our delusions have been more dangerous than others. Probably the most dangerous is the idea that China was our friend, that outsourcing jobs to China, becoming so dependent on them, uh, seeing them as uh, non-competitive with us, that they simply wouldn't dream of ever tra trying to surpass the United States. That was the most dangerous delusion of them all. Many people still have this view, John. They think that China either uh, is going to collapse. That's a very common theory. There's a book called The Coming Collapse of China, which came out in 2001. It was the best-selling book on China for several years. Um, and I have no envy or, uh, of the author. I, I thought it was a pretty good book myself. Uh, Vice President Pence Pence made a speech at Hudson Institute where he calculated from the time the book came out, The Coming Collapse of China came out in 2001, until the present time of his speech, China's economy, rather than collapsed, had grown 10 times bigger. Now, that's really wow. quite astonishing. Their annual growth rate over a 30-year period was about 10%. So the notion that we're dealing with a weak China is still very common. And this leads to a lot of, I think, uh, failed diagnoses of what the problem with China is. The problem is not they're weak. The problem is they're strong, that by various accounts, they could have even surpassed our economic GDP already. That's the World Bank account in 2016. Calls, it's called technically purchase power parity. China became the number one right. country in the world. So if we're dealing with a weak China, then we can have rhetoric and denounce them and say they're atheists and they lie and cheat and steal as if our rhetoric itself, John, will solve the problem. Many people believe this. Right. If we just bear witness to their treatment of the Uyghurs uh, or the Tibetans or they arrest lawyers from time to time or anyone who criticizes the government, somehow if we just denounce them in speeches, whether it's the floor of the Senate or cabinet secretaries, this will be enough. This was the Obama point of view. Right. The Obama team saw problems with China, but they thought they could just denounce them and not actually do anything. That's the big difference with President Trump. He not only believes China is strong, he's spoken several times about it, John, in very great detail. He has, and, and uh, you and he are very synced. I know you talk often with him. Um, what do we know right now? Uh, and, and knowing that all your uh, all the points that you made have now sort of played out in real time, our codependency on uh, the China supply line, the fact that they weren't going to, uh, through enge engagement, give us a complete cooperation when they don't want to give us anything. Um, what have we learned right now about the, uh, China's response to COVID? Do, do we, is it reasonable to believe that we were misled on the scope and size of the infection and the way it was transmitting in their country? Well, I guess my most important point in reply to that question is it depends what you mean by we. The we is, doesn't really exist. We're split. So we have a lot of apologists for China, including inside our government, especially including in the health field. These are people who helped China create its own 
Center for Disease Control 30 years ago. Right. We've exported a lot of technology and ideas to China. One of them is the public health system. So a lot of our doctors, Dr. Fauci included, personally have visited facilities in China. They know Chinese scientists. So when they are given evidence that China may have misled us, they immediately seek another explanation that maybe there was a misunderstanding or maybe local officials lied to Beijing. Uh, so there's no we that understands what's happened. There's the continuing friends of China who always, I hate to say apologize, but they have an explanation. Then there's this growing group that feels betrayed that this was a country that was going to be a free market, a democracy and our ally. And now it's turned into some sort of strange adversary. I, I see this debate almost every day and the Chinese play on it. They have a beautiful system of propaganda, disinformation. Uh, every day they have a new explanation for why things have gone wrong when the coronavirus crisis. And in a way, John, what's somewhat amusing is they're trying to blame America for the whole thing. They put out a number of stories they did. that the Americans are really behind this. They've got a new theme over the past two or three weeks <clears throat> that the Americans are sluggish and slow. And it's their own fault that America has the most cases and the most, the most deaths. They're trying to suggest that China is now the leader of the world and America has sort of stumbled because of this coronavirus that they essentially say did not come from China or there's no evidence it came from China. And they try to make everybody not say Wuhan virus anymore, a Chinese virus. Right. Even the president, even President Trump stopped saying Wuhan virus. So the Chinese lobby is very strong, just as the country is very strong. So doing, knowing what to do about them and the challenge is uh, not an easy subject. And there's a lot of vicious debate uh, here in Washington about what to do. The um, if you you are asked to give you know the president your best advice and you you probably have pretty good insights into the size of infection and deaths in China. Do you have any sense what the real numbers may be? Is it what they reported? Is it one x two x more? What what what's the current thinking among the best experts who have visibility into the size of the China outbreak? Well, of course, the apologists for China inside our government would say this is just a poor country that doesn't do statistics very well. <laughs> right. <laughs> they have hypersonic missiles. They're not that poor. Yes. I think common sense tells us if you look at other countries' curves for the percent of the population that gets the virus and then the percent that dies, the Chinese numbers simply don't make sense. They look like they're cutting as much as half of the cases that they must have and the deaths they must have. Could they do this? Well, this is a very interesting piece of work done by the Radio Free Asia Mandarin Service. This is a very unusual uh, congressionally chartered group right. of Chinese speakers who call into China. They called into Wuhan and got all kinds of figures, very specific, how many cremations were going on at the seven different cremation uh, factories in Wuhan. They got counts of funerals, uh, and their numbers were approximately 10 times bigger, 40,000 deaths, instead of the official number of 4,000. So the Radio Free Asia reporting really uh, went worldwide because it tended to explain the strange low count the Chinese are putting out. Uh, but again, it's hard to know exactly if President Trump offered, uh, he says, as early as January 6th on a phone call with President Xi, he offered to send Americans to Wuhan. 
that was refused. Uh, they won't even let the uh, CDC WHO team go to Wuhan. They were able to travel around China, but not Wuhan. So the mystery in all this, I think, remains unsolved. I talked to a lot of folks in the intelligence community. And one of the things that they remind me often is that Wuhan, beyond being the location of the outbreak, is, is a significant military manufacturing and intelligence hub. For instance, just the other day, the Chinese have uh, announced they're going to launch a new communication satellite called the Wuhan, which was named because it was built in that sensitive manufacturing district. Um, do you have a sense that some of their secrecy was designed to keep people away from one of their key military hubs? Well, the sensitivity seems to be these two institutions in Wuhan that the West, uh, ironically enough, helped to create. The bioweapons labs? One is a biosafety, one's the Biosafety Level 4 Institute of Virology. Right. And this was portrayed by some as a secret, sinister uh, bioweapons facility. That's not true. Americans have been there. Right. The French helped to build it. American scientists have even warned that they were not treating their virus experiments safely enough. So it's a well-known unit. Uh, they even got, they had somebody inside the Institute tweeting out about we're not making anything bad here and everything is proper. So again, this Chinese public diplomacy disinformation campaign from the beginning was right on the Institute of Virology in Wuhan is no big deal. It's your friend. But of course, nobody could visit. The other facility is much closer to the so-called wildlife or wet market. That's the CDC unit that we also helped to create in Wuhan. So you'd think so many of American scientists and uh, French and other countries visited. You'd think in this time of crisis, those two facilities would be open for visitation and cooperation on what exactly is the virus. Right. No, John, they are completely closed. And this is something China can't explain uh, very well, even through their disinformation program. Right. Well, it goes to the most important part of your book, right? The false assumption that because we had all this engagement when the time came for cooperation, we'd get it and we didn't get it from China. I mean, that was one of the primary themes of your book in 2015. And we saw it play out in real time in January, February, March of this year. It's, uh, it is remarkable. That's right. And the, but I would also add that the institutional interests inside our government to treat China as a friend and partner, that has not changed. Right. My book had some effect. It became the best-selling book on China. It surpassed Henry Kissinger. Right. But it didn't. Some of the things I called for, John, have not happened yet. One was an inventory of all the cooperative programs our different federal departments run with China. These have never been approved by Congress. They're usually done as part of uh, exchange programs. Even the Defense Department has been increasing its exchanges with the Chinese military in the last two or three years. Right. We've increased the number of scientific exchanges. Uh, the first year of the Trump administration, Rex Tillerson and Susan Thornton at the State Department, they signed a whole series of increasing scientific exchange protocols with China. Uh, it looks like in some ways our dependency on China has been increasing over the last three or four years. So, yes, I sort of sounded the alarm but this is an enormous force of inertia uh, that guides what we do about China. And I'm getting increasingly pessimistic that it will ever be changed because we can't do a simple inventory of what all these programs are. It's remarkable. And uh, you talk about bureaucratic inertia. Once once these agencies get locked into these relationships, they're loath to give them up, even 
even if intelligence or common sense tells you that we're not winning or we're getting what we promised out of those um, those relationships. You've mentioned the the, the two uh, uh, bio labs. There are a lot of people who have theorized that maybe this was an experiment that got away. Do you have any reason to believe that this is a manufactured virus or is this something that came organically out of the wildlife? Well, the Chinese scientists who work on viruses published a lot of articles in the most famous uh, journals of the world, right. uh, Lancet, Nature, Science. Uh, there's even a wonderful journal I've gotten to know <laughs> called Viruses. <laughs> they all come out in English. Teams of Chinese scientists before this pandemic were boasting about their research on viruses, including coronaviruses. Uh, they were giving theories of um, how they were basically nurtured inside bats, so right. that eighty-five percent of the genome's structure would be from, a, from would be a bat-born virus. Now China is trying to take all that back. They're trying to say, no, we never really experimented with the virus. We didn't culture new strains of it in the laboratory. But the problem with that is their scientists have already published these articles, and they're rather easy to find online if you just go to viruses. By the way, the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology has its own website. It does? <laughs> I've, I've actually been on yes. it. Yeah, it, it came up last week in a story. Yeah. But if you want to understand the whole thing, the one good place to go is the our U.S. embassy in Beijing has a website. And it, it mentions that we have 2,300 officials in the embassy and the consulates all over China. It's our largest diplomatic post in the world. Mm. You don't do this with an enemy. Right. You do it with a friend. Right. As many, the website says as many as 50 U.S. government agencies are inside our embassy in Beijing. And it gives copies of all the cooperative agreements we have with China. Wow. So what we have in a, going on in Washington now, John, as you know very well, we have a lot of almost hysterical, strident voices. Right. That we have to bring China down. We have to punish them. They must pay a price. They're evil. They're like Hitler or worse. At the same, at the same time, or also that they're going to collapse and they're weak. Therefore, we can rather easily... Uh, intimidate them. At the other, on the other side, you see, in the, in the real world, a terrific cooperation goes on between the U.S. and China, as if all this criticism, from what you might call the China superhawks, as if the criticism doesn't even exist. So a lot of people in Congress can play to this. Right. They can go on TV and say, "I'm going to have an investigation. I'm going to cut off aid to the World Health Organization." So they get on TV for a while. But then in three months or six months, will they really cut off the aid to the World Health Organization or do an inventory of our cooperation programs? I, I doubt it, John. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
It is it is remarkable, and it, it's funny that uh, you mentioned because on China, it's really a a reflection of the larger uh, bipolar world we have, which literally there are just two sets of facts, and there are two different factions on almost every issue in America, and it's hard for the one side to penetrate the other, and vice versa, which is probably bad for America because we we can't get a more complete picture of our threat assessments and our threat. Um, Opportunities. It's it's remarkable to uh, to watch this play out. What President? What what does the cut in for a second? What sure. President Trump has done that's made all the difference in the world compared to the last twenty or thirty years. Right. Over enormous opposition, he put tariffs on. Right. At first, relatively low, then higher, and as the negotiations, which were quite brutal, played out over a year and a half period, he kept increasing the tariffs. He would even say, you know, I could go to fifty percent, or even higher. Right. And the Chinese at first didn't believe this. They would read our newspapers about the White House Oval Office debates and how people were opposing tariffs and just ask, just wanted to ask China nicely to be <laughs> to stop the theft. Right. So the president made the decision to not only start the tariffs but to increase them systematically. <clears throat> then the high drama was when the Chinese reneged on the deal, and the president. He has my enormous admiration for this, as I think it's wide, widely known. Within about 24 hours, the president came on television and said, you can't renege on a deal like this. This is not acceptable, and I'm doubling the tariffs. You know what happened, John? The Chinese came back to the negotiating table. They sure did. We finally got this phase one deal. But that took great courage and boldness and the president overruling a lot of his close advisors who identified themselves as free trade people and free market, and they believe deeply in cooperation with China. Right. So the president deserves a lot of credit. He's been he's been followed by Secretary Pompeo. He's now made a series of five speeches about China and the, the kind of China lobby in Washington that I mentioned earlier. Right. So there you see a team of the president, the vice president's speeches, and Secretary Pompeo. But I don't see the rest of the administration speaking out this way at all. Yeah, it it is. It's it's really isolated between the president and the secretary of state himself, and and um, and not much, not many other advocates. I mean, you have a Tom Cotton in in the Senate that you know speaks out a lot, but it's um, yes. There's not a, there's not a lot of voices that are, are supporting it, but they're still getting a lot done. What effect do you think the coronavirus controversy, the origins in China, all these questions that are unresolved, what effect is that going to have on the next round of trade negotiations and getting to a, a phase two deal? I assume everything on trade probably kicks until after our election now, given what we know, right? I know the president earlier when he was signing the deal, I was lucky enough to be with uh, Henry Kissinger and Lou Dobbs right. in the front row in the East Room when the president had the signing ceremony. And he did say, I'm going to go to China uh, to start the negotiations on phase two, he changed his view. He used to say it would be after the next election uh, and imply he'd be a lot tougher if China didn't come around. I think that worked. Right. And so there were some signals from China that phase two in which they reduce their subsidies would would make progress. That, of course, John, is the key to the long-term competition. Right now, um, China has about 125 companies, mostly state-owned, on the Forbes 500 biggest companies in the world list. Right. As recently as 15 years ago, China was zero. They have now surpassed us. We have about 115 companies on the on the Forbes um, top 500 by capitalization. So China has surpassed us in many, many ways. The number of large companies, size of GDP, 
they're making progress in artificial intelligence, uh, quantum information technology. It's it's getting to be quite. They long ago surpassed this just as a joke in the amount of beer being drunk. People would laugh <laughs> about that. But yeah, but it's a sign. Yeah, but it's quite a serious right. matter now. And these subsidies are their secret, where they can dominate a market and they can just price. They also steal negotiating data. So if you're Westinghouse and I'm another country and I want to buy some nuclear reactors from you, the Chinese can undercut the Westinghouse negotiating offer because they uh, use cyber espionage to find out what it is and then make a better offer. So we've only, I, I went into great detail in all this in my 100-year marathon book. But as I say, it was initially just disbelieved how the Chinese couldn't be that smart. That's how I was basically ridiculed right. when the book first came out. Not anymore. I think they are that smart. <laughs> yeah. And they're methodical, too. They're very patient. I mean, that's one of the things that we in America with our short attention spans don't appreciate. The, the Chinese are methodical in, their, in reaching their goals. And, you know, we saw that going back to the 1990s with the, the efforts to, to gain influence through campaign contributions during the Clinton years and efforts to spy on our nuclear weapons program. It's a very methodical approach. Yes, where the president deserves so much credit is not only diagnosing the problem himself right. and some books he's written as far back as 20 years ago, uh, he would diagnose the problem. He also called the Chinese the smartest negotiators in the world. <laughs> that says something from a man who prides himself on negotiating. Yeah. And he talked about, he talked about their surpassing us. Yeah. I've heard him, president one time said his desire to run for president was based on not letting China surpass us. Isn't that interesting that that would be such a motivation? You can see it in his writings. You can see it in his 2016 platform. Uh, you've seen it in his policies since then. And um, I, I, I ask now, because I, you, you have his ear often, uh, where does the president go next? What are the next three or four months look like in our U.S.-China relationships? What are things that the president should and can do to address some of the concerns that we just talked about? Well, I don't work for him, you know. I'm an outside advisor, right? So I can make my recommendations, but usually he's ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think his, I think his thinking about China recently has been to repeat that if another president wins in 2020, China will surpass us. He's obviously talking about Joe Biden, right? And the previous two or three years, he said several times in public, if Hillary had won, China would be surpassing us now during her term. So I think this idea of China not surpassing us is very much on his mind. And if you look at the Steve Schwartzman's forecast that we've lost $5 trillion right. of our GDP, our GDP is almost $22 trillion. If we've lost $5 trillion and China has, has stayed flat, which we don't know, of course, then China is already surpassing us now. Right. It puts a whole new take on the year 2020 and the coronavirus crisis. It could be that the Chinese see themselves as the world's leader already because of the coronavirus, that they uh, have they never really closed all of China, John. They closed Wuhan and central right. China. They closed parts of Shanghai. Right. So now what they're as they reopen they have less of a hole to dig themselves out of than we do. So they may well believe that their, their year to surpass us is this year or next year. They sort of hope it's next year because it's the 100th anniversary of the Communist China, the Communist 
Party of China being founded in 1921 in Shanghai. Some symbolic importance. They're going to have a nationwide celebration to beat all celebrations next right. year. So from their point of view, surpassing us <laughs> is the ultimate birthday cake, if you will. Right, right. I think this is on the president's mind. That may be a factor in why he wants us to come out of the um, lockdown so quickly and put our country back to work. Right. It may be he's thinking in the back of his mind about China. Well, it is uh, it is fascinating that these dynamics are there. And if you look at the media, you'd hardly know that that's what China was thinking because of the coverage. Uh, Joe Biden's policies on uh, China. Can you give us a quick handicap? Uh, what, uh, you know, he's been portrayed by the president as a China apologist, his son trying to cash in, Hunter. What, what's your take on what a Biden administration's China policies might look at compared to President Trump? Well, there's an interesting contrast between Senator Biden's own views and his advisors. I've known Senator Biden a long time. We traveled together once in the early 80s, actually, in Europe with other senators. Um, he is a sort of globalist in the mainstream who's, who has all the delusions about China that I discuss in my 100-year marathon book. He's not particularly more pro-China than uh, his colleagues. And there's a wonderful ad the Trump 2020 campaign put out with just little five-second clips right. of him talking about China. And it's very, very clear. He, he makes fun of China. He says, oh, come on. You know, they, they can't, Some people say they could eat our lunch. Come on, man. And he just does not see any threat. He doesn't see any concern. He probably would very much condone the cooperation programs continuing. Right. He certainly wouldn't cut the embassy or cut the military exercises that we already have with China. We, we like to send our ships to China to visit. We've asked the, for aircraft carriers to visit Hong Kong, for example. Even during the demonstrations, we're still so uh, wed to our old program. I think uh, President Biden would, would continue all that, probably increase it. Uh, and he might be surprised one day when his the Larry Kudlow for President Biden comes in and tells him, Mr. President, I have some bad news for you. China just surpassed us and the whole world knows it. He might be quite surprised, don't you think? Uh, that that would be a moment. There's no doubt. And it's a, it's a moment that all presidents prior have been able to avoid. But we seem to be getting closer to that tipping point, as, as you so powerfully remind us. Um, while this is going on, I want to ask you, uh, I keep hearing that there's been some bad, that China's been escalating some of its military and uh, intelligence operations against places like Taiwan and others. It's trying to take advantage of our attention span being focused on COVID. Um, are you seeing some uh, uh, new aggression beyond what we saw in the South China Sea and other things previously? Is there Are there new aggressions on, ongoing right now? Well, there's several aspects to your question. Uh, one is their display of having bombers fly around Taiwan Island. That's been going on a couple of years now. Right. They've also very deliberately had some incidents where uh, their military aircraft cross what's called the midline in the Taiwan Strait. That's not, that doesn't worry me as much as three other things they're doing. They've decided some time ago that space and cyber are new fields of warfare where they need to set up commands and invest enormous amount of money and steal a lot of technology from us. So they're their activity in space is really quite astonishing. We used to be by far the greatest launcher of satellites every year. Right. That was one indicator. Now China has not only surpassed us, but the schedule this year is they will launch twice as many satellites as we do. Wow. Then in cyber espionage, they seem to be ahead of us. 
There's a third area they call the seventh domain of warfare. This is biological warfare, bioweapons, uh, genetically tuned weapons that can attack only a certain kind of uh, ethnic group. There are several books Chinese generals have written about the seventh domain, and those two generals have been promoted. One of them is the head of their National Defense University. The other one is the vice uh, director of their Academy of Military Science. So the seventh domain is something we have signed a treaty right. called the Biological Warfare Convention. We will not use biological weapons and don't maintain them other than a few samples. Um, here are the Chinese journals writing about how this is a new domain of warfare. This adds to the suspicion about the coronavirus experiments in Wuhan. If you, what's your personal assessment? Do you think that this uh, virus escaped one of their labs, or do you think it, it's a, a, a an organic virus? Uh, I honestly don't know. I have talked to forensic specialists, and how would you be able to detect right. a man-made or bioengineered virus? And it turns out it's quite difficult. Um, it's not just an easy thing where it's red or green, <laughs> and therefore we know it's a human-engineered virus. One theory, based on, the, based on the Chinese scientists' own writings, one theory is they did start studying different strains that they had encouraged from nature, and that somehow this got into an animal, and that animal was then sold in the, in the market in Wuhan. That's one theory. Right. But until we actually get interview material from these scientists, uh, we're just not going to know, John. Yeah. So in your mind, it's an open question. It's not a closed and shut question. It's an open question that this could have escaped from the labs. I would say their secretiveness makes me suspicious. Because of our close cooperation, and even, and as I say, the French even helping to build the Institute Laboratory in Wuhan, you would think they would immediately have accepted President Trump's offer uh, January 6th, that American teams would go to Wuhan and try to see what how this virus behaves and how best to kill it, and also how to develop vaccines. Right. Chinese have far more test vaccines now, they, do. they say in their newspapers, than we do. So are they going to share the results of these vaccines with us? I certainly hope so. But right. that might be a naive delusion. Yeah. Well, that is, those are the open questions that we have to get to the bottom to. A couple quick more questions, and I think they go to the, the some of the warnings in, in your great book, The 100-Year Marathon. Um you keep talking about our predisposition to continue to do things that actually benefit China and potentially undercut our long-term national security, our long-term financial security. There is a pending decision that began under President Trump 2017 by an obscure agency called the Federal Government Thrift Savings Plan. And it basically takes all of the pensions of the millions of current and former federal workers, military uh, and invest them in funds. And they made a decision in 2017, which they're in the final stages of implementing, about uh, investing uh, these federal workers, these military retirees, pension funds in an international index that has a lot of uh, what we would call bad actors or suspicious actors. Some of the companies are companies that are banned uh, by OFAC. Some of them are just simply Chinese military competitors to our defense sector. Uh, there's been some pretty cogent voices. Uh, the former Navy Secretary Spencer, Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, saying that this is an insane decision, that this is the China lobby, uh, again, getting America to help China advance its capabilities. Do you have a feeling on what this board is about to do and whether it's good for America? Yes, I do. Um, and it fits into a larger picture. 
involving the Congress. There has been, uh, I would say, several senators and congressmen have made very um, flamboyant speeches. Right. That this is a terrible thing. Military officer, military uh, people's pensions should not go to state-owned Chinese companies. One of the most outrageous companies is the one that does the dredging in the South China Sea right. to build these artificial islands. So they got a lot of media attention that this is a terrible thing. It, in fact, it has to do with why the Morgan Stanley uh, Capital Index shifted to include uh, Chinese companies. So this has been going on for two years. The number of co-sponsors for legislation against China, including this issue, the Federal Thrift Board Investment in China issue, usually it's only two or four or five senators. Mm -hmm. In the House, it might be the same thing, two or three or four. So they get the press attention that they're on the case. This is a terrible thing. We must stop China. But actually, the program is going forward. I believe it's starting uh, this month. That's right. We're in the final stages. So this is the problem with action against China. We have the rhetoric. We have this school that says China is going to collapse, so don't worry about it. And we have a kind of puzzled um, electorate of voters who hear that China is so bad, but then nothing ever happens about it. Yeah, the, in the inaction. So the voters don't know what to do. Was this a missed opportunity to draw a line in the sand? Should we have said we're not going to be putting our – we didn't put our funds there for 40 years. We're not going to put them there now? Uh, no, it was an opportunity for some stagecraft by some in Congress and some in the media. And it simply has no traction. Yeah. And it's a large – I've got a project right now for Hudson. I'm keeping track of the anti-China legislation which you might call accountability for China legislation right. over the last couple of years. There's more than 70 pieces of legislation. Uh, none of them have got above five co-sponsors. And the authors, the various senators and House members, are on television a great deal, uh, tub-thumping, as we used to say, about how evil China is. Why can't they get the other 95 senators to sign up? That is the question. And that's why Secretary Pompeo has been so great in his speeches talking about the powerful China lobby right. here in Washington. And I think he means inside the government and inside the Congress. So until the voters and the TV hosts get more sophisticated and say, well, you know, you said that last year, Senator. How many co-sponsors do you have this year? Until we get some more sophistication in holding the Congress accountable, I think we're just not going to know the inventory of these programs. We're not going to be able to stop any of them. Not a single one has been stopped, John. There was an effort. There was a successful effort to close down one National Science Foundation office in China. Right. But the sharing of our scientific discoveries continues. And as I say, Rex Tillerson renewed those agreements in 2017. Amazing. I think without checking with the president. Really? Wow. China is an issue that we often in the media take our eye off the ball or we have an oversimplified view of it. But you you have done an awful lot to educate the American public, not only through your books, but through your advice to the president and through your appearances on TV that we're in a um, in a struggle for supremacy. And, and um, the when this plays out, if you look a year from now, if there is still a President Trump because he's won re-election, uh, where does America need to be to try to keep one foot, one leg ahead of, of China? Well, one step would be to be much more sophisticated about the metrics, the measurements of how China is doing in the competition against us. If 
we had a widespread understanding that we're about to enter a Chinese-led world order and that we're about to become a kind of little brother to our Chinese leader. If that were widespread, I think you'd see a different attitude. You'd see much more skepticism when someone says, oh, isn't it nice we're having an American aircraft carrier go to Hong Kong for four days of vacation for the sailors. People would be horrified. Like, what? But I don't think we're there yet. And that's why I was so impressed with President Trump just two weeks ago. He was saying publicly that if Biden became president, China would definitely surpass us fairly quickly. <laughs> I think the president understands the problem and, is, and he knows only action like the tariffs can get results. And if heaven forbid, if China cheats on the trade one, trade phase one agreement, I think we're going to see a very angry President Trump who will then ask for what additional measures he can take to hold China accountable and not surrender our primacy to the Chinese. But we're not there yet, John. Yep. Well, some more history must play out. But I know you'll be watching. Folks, if you haven't had the chance, I know it's a few years old, but this book, The 100-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as a Global Superpower, it encapsulates in brilliant writing all the things that Michael just talked about, all of the extraordinary uh, lack of uh, checks and balances and data and lists that we haven't done to understand our competitive um, uh, uh disadvantage with China that we find ourselves in today. Uh, please get the book. It's a great read. It's something that will educate you in ways that you can't by reading the, the daily newspaper or watching uh, daily politics. Michael, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. We want to have you back in a few weeks uh, again as, as this plays out more to learn more from your, your insights and your advice to the president. But uh, on behalf of all the listeners of John Solomon Reports, thank you for spending so much time today and giving us uh, a lot of your, your great insights. Thank you, John. I think President Trump's doing a great job on China. We're going to be watching it play out for the next few months, too. There's more work to be had. So we'll, we'll be back at you. All right, folks, that wraps up a special edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. We hope you uh, enjoyed the incredible conversation with Michael Pillsbury. We'll be back tomorrow with more exciting uh, content.